I'm Glenn Falcon Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Good evening, all. Now, that was John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads. That is a song that features quite heavily in Logan Lucky, which we'll be talking about shortly. We will also be discussing The Lost City of Z, which is out tomorrow, and The Sad Death at 91 of comic icon Jerry Lewis. Uh, but first, we just returned from the Melbourne National Film Festival. We had, we had quite a good time in Melbourne. Yes, so many films and not enough time. Too many films, one might say. But most, but some really good ones. But I don't think Glenn agrees. Glenn has some reservations about a particular film that we both liked. Yeah. Yes, there was a, a film discussed quite heavily, in pr- which praise was heaped last week, Terrence Malick's <laughs> Voyage of Time. And I feel that like there needs to be some... Balance in this debate. Yeah, this 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 wasn't a great film. To give you an idea, this was a forty, this, this was forty five minutes of the universe according to Terence Malick. It jumped from dinosaurs to prehistoric and Cretaceous age to a young girl in a field to this indeterminate spot in the future. It was all the wonder of two thousand one of all these films, but without the the intellect or soul. You're not doing a very good job of not selling this movie, Chris. <laughs> no, I I think um I think the film did have a fair bit of intellect. I mean. Um, what I got out of the film was the idea that we're, that human activity and our lives are all part of the flow of the universe. And I think the movie did a pretty good job through the editing and the sound design of suggesting like a constant forward momentum of energy. I don't know. I liked that idea. It's a simple idea, but it's a short film. I think it expressed it pretty well. I, I think what Malik is doing, and I mentioned this last week, which might alienate a lot of people, but obviously alienated you, Glenn, is that he's trying to just concentrate on images and what kind of reactions and emotions images can draw and whether we can have a narrative purely by stringing images together. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, it felt like one of those <laughs> ad- academic like you know, things you go to IMAX, and I get the visuals are stunning. It was great to see well, it on the Well, big he screen, was but... an ad maker. I mean, let's yeah. be honest. I mean, he's been an avant-garde ad maker, you know, before those Audi ads with, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. with Natalie 40... McConaughey took off. I think yeah. he was doing that the, way before that. The thing about the... Um, the comment you made about it being like those academic IMAX films. In a lot of ways, yes, the imagery is very similar, but the difference for me was those movies smother you in academia, basically voiceovers telling you about facts and, uh, you know, not a very interesting presentation, whereas this film allows you to sit with the images and form your own meaning, which to me elevates it a lot above those. And to me, made it the most emotionally impactful IMAX film I'd seen. I don't know. I just felt like I was sitting through a Volvo ad for 45 <laughs> minutes. I mean, yeah, it was stunning, but if there was just something stringed together. I don't know. I think the Malik discussions on this uh, show, I think, will surely continue over the coming Yeah, that's that's sure to happen. Um, it's opening in Melbourne on um, August 31st. Unfortunately, our Sydney IMAX is closed for renovation during the time that this film's being released. Yep. But if ever you're down in Melbourne, check it out. Um, it's a short film. It's visually stunning, if nothing else. So make up your own mind playing with the orchestra right oh yes yes in october they'll be playing the longer version of this film 90 minutes long with a voiceover by kate blanchett with live orchestra accompaniment so we could discuss this movie in all its many forms for a long time to come i think we we will but for the moment we have the film that is in cinemas now 
and that is Steven Soderbergh's Logan Lucky. Now, he came out of retirement for this, not really, uh, to make this... <laughs> Did anyone believe he was really retiring? No. It's like It's like LCD sound system. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to do it. You'll be back. He was yeah, back. I mean... Will we believe in Tarantino actually called it quits? Apparently? Yeah, he won't. No. These people are addicted please, to film. Yeah, please, these please people. Don't. Who are these people? <laughs> yes, people like like Tarantino like, like and Soderbergh and us and us. And us. So, so his latest Logan Lucky uh, stars uh, quite an amazing cast: Channing Tatum, Adam Driver, and Daniel Craig. And introducing movie. Daniel Craig in his first ever role, apparently. <laughs> yes, he's <laughs> having quite some. Fun here is uh, interestingly named Joe Bang. Obviously, everyone knows Daniel Craig as he's as James Bond. There's a stars a number of others: Riley Coe, Katie Holmes, Hilary Swank, and Soderbergh has made many heist films before: Out of Sight, The Ocean's Films. This is in that tradition, but it's uh, this one is set in West Virginia, unlike Las Vegas. About a bunch of brothers down in their luck and decide to plan a heist of a NASCAR racetrack. Chris, what did we think of this film? Well. I really liked it. I haven't enjoyed... Um, actually, no. I, I have enjoyed his last few. I, I enjoyed Behind the Candelabra quite a bit. But beyond that, I haven't been on board with Soderbergh in probably you know nearly 10 years. This was a real return to form for me. Um, it's a very strange film. Soderbergh, as usual, edits and shot his own film under pseudonyms. And he it's in some ways a very mainstream conventional film, but he... His the rhythms of the direction are so relaxed, and you know, in matching the very warm kind of heart of the film, and the the shots and the editing choices are just a little bit left of center all the time. So it has a very strange vibe to it. It also throws quite a few curveballs in the third act, not in the typical heist film twist you expect. Um, so it's a very odd film. But I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought the performances were great across the board. I thought it was very gentle and funny. Um, I thought it was r- respectful of the audience's intelligence as well as the character's intelligence while also allowing for really silly sight gags. Um, it um, interestingly did not condescend to the Southern characters, which tends to be the trend for movies about this. It didn't j- just depict them as being dumb hicks. It's certainly to celebrate West Virginia. There's a wonderful scene where they sang that song we did refer to earlier. Um, I actually found, jumping on what you said about the pseudonyms, I actually found the story behind this film much more interesting than the actual film. The screenwriter is a person called Rebecca Blunt. We yeah. actually don't really know who this is. It's actually Soderbergh's wife. Oh, a rumor to be. So. But it's it's it, it, at this point, like Hollywood Reporter said, it was last last week, and they know. So yes, there's, there's been a few interesting yeah. shenanigans from yeah. this movie. Yeah. Look, I mean, this uh, the third act. It really did frustrate me. I mean, all these films are supposed to have heist films, in particular, are supposed to have a figure where you feel they're on the case, they can stop our protagonist. But this figure was only really introduced in the very third sloppy, really clumsy act in the form of Hilary Swank, who's very, very much out of place here. I thought she was was very bad um, but I think it was an interesting concept because in this film it's light entertainment he's going for a lower low attention um, kind of heist film and instead of having this strong antagonist figure who's you know one step away from destroying everything for the protagonists this is a movie about the main characters versus their own fate it's called Logan Lucky because the Logan brothers Channing Tatum and Adam Driver are meant to be cursed and this film is their attempt to finally turn things around for them in the form of pulling off this perfect heist 
And I feel they try to introduce those uh, you know emotional investments in the story. Like there's a scene where Channing Tatum's character has a list on the fridge, and there will be all these little bits. Katie Holmes introduced at one point, but if they just followed through Katie, yeah. on any of these elements, and they didn't. Katie Holmes was was a silly addition, but I think the emotional heart of the film really does work in the form of um, Channing Tatum's daughter and his relationship with her. That element really worked. Um, yeah. yeah, they kind of, I mean, they, they, again, at the same time, they introduced her just when necessary to kind of pad out the story when they feel, oh, we've done this heist, but now we need to introduce another element to the story. And like the best, honestly, the best bit in this film actually involves none of the main actors. There's a hilarious scene of the prison. Oh, that was really funny. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, we shouldn't, it involves um, some very deserved criticism of a certain successful author. Who we have discussed in the show in recent weeks. Yes, that, that's the only hint <laughs> we'll give. But it, uh, I think the heist itself is actually the high point of this film. I think the heist is so dumb yet so brilliant that it's just fun to watch it come together. Well, that's because of, really because of Daniel Craig. He does a lot of the heavy lifting. He does, here. yeah. And he's having fun. I mean, we've all heard what he thinks about James Bond. He hasn't made a lot of films recently. A lot of his films, uh, late films, Cowboys and Aliens, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, haven't done so well. But here, he's having an absolute ball as Joe He's Bang. really funny. Yeah. He, he can, he can, he can he's a great actor, actor. yeah. He, he always, he's always done dramatic roles, even before James Bond with Leia Cake and Elizabeth and whatnot. But here, he look, he just wants to have fun. And what, what actually, what I find more interesting about this film is how what Soderbergh has done with the distribution. I mean, he has, in the, at the very beginning, he sold off the foreign rights, sold off the streaming rights, and got the actors to work for profit of the film's gross and raise money that way. He's really trying to go out of the mainstream, not just in terms of how he's made this film, but in how he's marketed and distributed it to a wider audience. Soderbergh's always been one who likes to do things his own way, doesn't like being constrained by conventional studio dictates. Good on him for getting it done. Um, I hope he continues to do his own thing. This this movie, I think, it's not a movie with a huge emotional pull, and it's a movie that takes a lot of risks, some which work and some which don't. But I think as far as light entertainment and as a light comedy that is intelligent, it allows to play with dumbness without being dumb itself. It's very successful. So Logan Lucky is in cinemas now. We'll be back in a moment talking about The Lost City of Z. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. And that was Guns N' Roses with the classic Welcome to the Jungle because we are talking because we were at the Melbourne International Film Festival last week and I had the great distinct pleasure of seeing two films in one night, both about people getting lost in the Bolivian jungle. Uh, one was Jungle starring Daniel Radcliffe. And the other was Lost City of Z. And we're going to talk about the better film out of the two. Yes. I'm, I'm pretty jealous. I love the director, James Gray. I'm keen to see this movie tomorrow. Keen to hear what you guys think. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of, it is in cinemas tomorrow. Uh, it stars Charlie Hunnam, Robert Pattinson of Twilight fame, Sienna Can Miller. Can we actually stop 
calling him like off twilight fame can we actually call him an actor now because i really think he's in the best film yeah. of this year good he's, time he's in the next claire denis film as well there we now. go like, like he's actually just, yeah he's in really good films now <laughs> all right I, I have to bite my tongue and say i'm sorry rob patterson you, you you're a good actor all right fair call fair cop all right rob patterson in his own on his own merit santa miller and tom <laughs> holland this is the real story of british explorer or percy fawcett in the early part of the 20th century and he's repeated expeditions to bolivian jungle in search of the lost civilization and the city known as Z. Um, it's a drama. It has a number of amazing actors who are absolutely at the top of their game and have chosen to do this film. Virat, what did we think of The Lost City of Z? Look, I've always enjoyed James Gray's sort of narrative style of telling a story but from different perspectives and how he really is able to propel the narrative forward from different dimensions and people's emotional stakes in this journey. It seems like a simple journey narrative of, you know, going in a jungle and discovering a lost city, but it's so much more than that. And actually the emotional undercurrent of this film was what really shook me because I'm like, it feels like a quite a genre film, but it isn't. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen Charlie Hunnam in a few not-so-great films. We reviewed King Arthur some weeks ago. Oh, he was terrible in that. He he was. You saw it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not I good. I mean, it's, uh, it had Londinium as a thing. Londinium, yeah. That was so funny. He was great in this. He was stoic. He was abrupt. He held the film. He was basically in every single sequence. And him together, Ron Patterson, he, if you didn't know it was him, he's almost unrecognizable in this film. And together, um, together and Sienna Miller, I think she did... She doesn't in a lot of the film, but she had an impact in every single sequence. The performers here are absolutely top-notch, and there's a reason Tom Holland, who is a great actor who's come off Spider-Man, can do basically any project he wants, but decided to do this. Um, it's a, quite a thrill to see so many solid actors doing working a really emotional, dramatic piece and doing it quite well. I mean, it's interesting also because this seems to be on the surface a journey narrative, but the social commentary on this, because it's obviously set in the beginning just before the breakout of the First World War, so there is Bolivia and Brazil and the British stake in this. So that colonial kind of sub-commentary that's happening in this movie is really interesting. And I think that's what really becomes the catalyst for this journey, which I was very surprised by because I was not expecting such a DNM kind of feel out of this film. Well, touching on the World War One aspect, I was quite curious because there's like a lot of tension in the film. There's a repeated expedition to the jungle, but then it's kind of broken up with one sequence on the Somme, uh, which I found quite interesting. And yes, it's situated in the time. It kind of deals with some of his motivation in a way for wanting to go back. But this was the this was the one issue I took with the film in that there were it was an epic. It was more than two hours long and deservedly so. But uh, the tension was so broken up by jumping back and forth, back and forth. I mean, there's a lot of legitimate criticism of Game of Thrones right now and that, you know, we're seeing characters jumping entire distances in a matter of minutes. And we kind of see that here. There's no, when you see someone in the Amazon and then suddenly in Britain, there's no real sense of journey or time or impact. And this happens quite a lot. And I think, once again, this is a problem between TV narratives and film narratives. You know, something on TV works really well where you can have multiple arcs play out and this is what Game of Thrones really brought back in fashion, where you have multiple arcs that go on for two set, two minutes or so, and then eventually you can pick those up next week. But in film, I'm not sure it works really well. In on TV, we expect things to take a longer time. You know, on in cinema, we can you know jump from the the bone rising into the air to the space station thousands of years later. But at the same time, I'm really interested and you know quite fascinated to see how James Gray played with this narrative because this is not an easy film 
to set in this kind of screenplay structure. You know, but the fact that he did it and actually used that as a catalyst to move the narrative forward is in itself the best thing about it, but also the worst thing about it. Yeah, and uh, interesting, There's um, we've talked about a number of the performances in the film, but one who doesn't always get a lot of attention, uh, who was very good in this, was Angus McFadden playing one of the more tragic figures. I mean, it's such a broad story in terms of the motivations it deals with, the characters it deals with, the, um, the, the, the egotistical figures, but at the same time the quite emotional damage figures and what this epic, what this journey means to them. What I was more uh, sort of sceptical about was the depiction of the natives, if we can call them that, you know, the sort of indigenous peoples of Amazons, which we're going to, how they're going to be represented. But what I'm really surprised by in a good way was that this story is definitely about the ego battles that happen between the sort of, you know, the company that goes there and the and how they come across and the battles they have internally. So almost uh, the finding of this lost city is just a MacGuffin, which I really enjoyed. Is this film in the same kind of 1970s inspired old school Hollywood vibe that he's? It, it's his very last much like movie? that sort of Percy Jackson King Kong kind of vibe. Really? Actually. Okay, it's that's that. It's that's, that kind of. That's uh, a big shift for yeah, James Gray. Yeah. So it, it's very much about you know you follow this one tribe of people throughout time and how they change across different decades. So it's almost like following them across different time periods. It, right. It, it has a really epic adventure feel yeah i mean yeah. you're going and i mean you, you could apply this sort of narrative not just to as uh, uh, exploration set 100 or 200 years ago but to science fiction and the type we've seen in many episodes of star trek well, where you're engaging with the new uh race or new community are you going to say valerian chris no, no. Valerian, i was going to say it's interesting you say that because james gray is gearing up now to shoot his next film which is an epic adventure in space ah, okay. with Brad Pitt as the space adventurer right. going in search of his father or something like that. It's really interesting because Brad Pitt was attached, is part of the project. He was executive producer. Wasn't yeah, he attached yeah. to Star at one point? Yeah, he was. It was like six years ago that, that um, James Gray first started trying to get this film off the ground and Brad Pitt was going to star in it, but then he got too old for the role or was tied up in other projects and so it got passed on to Charlie Hunnam. Well, but we're glad it did. It's I mean, a, he's, yeah. yeah, he's actually you know this is the first time I've actually been convinced that he can act. So, in a way, a good choice. It's good to hear that this film's turned out well because um, I'm I'm a big fan of the book, which uh, is a, a fantastic nonfiction book. It t- it's such a, a huge story, so I could see how yeah. it could be very difficult to condense this into a dramatic screenplay. <laughs> and, and, and it's great that you say that because you know as a counterpoint. Dark Tower, which they totally messed up transitioning from book to screen. So I think this is a very good exercise in how to actually do it properly. Yes. Um, well, could uh, you tell us more yeah. about what you thought of the Dark Tower? Yes. Uh, Dark Tower is in cinemas now. It is adapted from the Stephen King novel. It is starring Matthew McConaughey and Idris Elba. Uh, I haven't heard the best thing, so I'm curious to hear what you have to say, Barat. Well, it's it's just a terrible movie. I mean, <laughs> to, to put it quite simply. But uh, the reasons why it's terrible are multifold. Firstly, Matthew McConaughey seems to be stuck up in that true detective Rust Cole mode, which really is getting old now. Like, I'm just sick of him trying to mouth dialogue as if he's whispering every time. You know, can he, Can we just say dialogues now? Can, can I just hear them? And also, there's too much exposition as dialogue, you know, because it's a complex book. Stephen King's Dark Tower series is very complex and very difficult to actually put on screen. So characters say things that would explain and dumb it down for the audience. So there are moments where they would say, oh, so you mean you see other worlds? Oh, so you mean you saw the gunslinger? I've heard it's only like 85 minutes long. 
I surely know. they could have made a longer film that shows you rather than has people explaining. But in a way, I was glad. <laughs> I didn't want to sit through any more of that. So it's, but it has a really good performance by Idris Elba. He's trying his heart out. And, it, and that's what really, really disappointed me because he's being very sincere. It's almost his... Jupiter's Moon moment. He is. Oh, that's 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 a big big call. Look, it's it's a tough thing because we've seen fantasy series. That Sorry, Jupiter's really... Ascending. That's what oh, I wanted Jupiter's to say. Yeah. I, I, I was Moon is like, like I didn't see Jupiter's Moon. Jupiter's, I'm very curious Jupiter's what Jupiter's this Moon means. also, yeah, which yeah, is also terrible. Yes. Jupiter Ascending. You mean like yes. Eddie Redmayne yes. in Jupiter yes. Ascending? But like you know, in that movie that we had Mila Kunis trying to be all sincere in a very bad film. In yeah. this way, Idris Elba is trying to be sincere and terribly. Yeah. Just to right. clarify, Jupiter's Moon is a European film that just came out. It's playing a few festivals. Jupiter's Ascending. Jupiter's Ascending. The guys. Wor- was one of the worst reviewed films in the of my lifetime. Now, um, but this, I mean, we've seen fantasy series adapted really well with the likes of Game of Thrones, and there was I know there was talk of a Dark Tower TV series. It feels this one being better made as a TV series throughout a narrative. I and mean, we saw with Lost City of Z, even with the epic narrative, they couldn't quite get to everything they wanted in the space of two and a half hours. That could have just as well been a TV series, but it seems it even applies more strongly in this case. Yeah, but, but the thing is that I think with the Dark Tower, what they're trying to do is they're trying to tell an action film of a book which is not an action series. This is not about Idris Elba's hero narrative or him... Tra- There's no world building. There's just, you know, a boy seeing visions and then you're in that world. There's no even an attempt to try and tease out what this world looks like, which is just sad. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Dark Tower um, is in cinemas now, but just popping back to Lost City of Z, I understand there's an interesting screening of that coming Oh, up yeah, that's soon. right. At the... The Cremorne Orpheum, um, a week from now, um, on you, you know, you're forgiven for missing Film Fight Club next Wednesday night. You can listen to the podcast. Yes, you can. <laughs> because David Gran, who wrote the novel The Lost City of Z, will be in attendance at the Cremorne Orpheum. So after the 6.30 session of the film, you can meet him and talk to him and get the book signed if you'd like. I was a big fan of the book, yeah. so I'll be there. Buy books, read books, save books. Yes, please do. And uh, we will be back in a moment. There's Lost City of Z. It is in cinemas everywhere tomorrow and played at the Melbourne International Film Festival. And we'll be back in a moment discussing Jerry Lewis. Stay tuned. Black magic has been its spell. That old black magic that you weave so well. Those icy fingers up and down my spine. The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine. The same old tingle that I feel inside. And then that elevator starts its ride. And down, down, down I go round, round, round. I go like a leaf that's caught in the tide. I should stay away, but what can I I hear your name. And that was Jerry Lewis as Buddy Love singing that old black magic from Nutty Professor. I feel like I'm back announcing a you know music show, not a film show, which was quite fun. But yes, that was Jerry Lewis. And we are, uh, he passed away this week, very sadly, at the age of 91. He was one of the great comedians and film stars of the past century. He is universally known. Uh, we all have a favorite Jerry Lewis film, but I know and Varun in particular was quite a fan. Well, I was a fan of the original Nutty Professor because I know people remember the Nutty Professor as an Eddie Murphy vehicle, and that was tragic. Actually, the Eddie Murphy film was one of my first experiences with movies, 
And that really turned me off movies for a while because I was so scarred by that. I'm like, is this what movies are like? Is this what I'm supposed to enjoy? And then I saw the original Ali Professor and I'm like, ah, oh, okay. So that was just a bad movie. Okay. So, but the original Ali Professor, it's fascinating how much good about Lewis is encapsulated within that one film. You know, Jerry Lewis is somebody who was excellent with facial comedy. You know, in the likes of Jack Lemmon, even... Uh, Peter Sellers and other people and Jerry Lewis could do slapstick like no other. He had a beautiful partnership with Dean Martin before they fell out and I think for good reason but also I think that's the best thing that happened to the world because we got a solo breakout Jerry Lewis doing his thing. He wrote, directed so many of his movies and I think I'm just really sad because when Buster Keaton kind of died I think part of me was Jerry Lewis was our Buster Keaton. Jerry Lewis, yeah, he he had a fascinating career because I think he was the Adam Sandler or the the Jim Carrey of his day, and really those comedians learned a lot from his playbook. But it's interesting that he sort of fell out of favor and just became known as like just you know a broad comedian, not very popular in the English speaking world, famously very popular consistently in France, but. He was, in my opinion, he was always great. He, um, well, I, because we were talking about the Melbourne International Film Festival, they did a retrospective about Jerry Lewis films not too long ago. Yes. So, you know, all the Jerry this, Lewis fans in Australia would have definitely seen at least one. Yes, this right. was last year. There's always fantastic retrospectives there. Yeah, go Melbourne International Film Festival. But yeah, as, as Virat said, he was so talented in terms of physical comedy, but he was a really surprisingly talented director. Um, a film I really like by him is The Ladies' Man, which is a film about a man scarred by a bad relationship who becomes afraid of women and is then forced to live with a bunch of women um, in a, a big, beautifully designed dollhouse, which Jerry Lewis has a lot of fun staging scenes through yeah. and you know gliding the camera through. It's a, a, a beautiful conceit to, to build a film he's, around. He's able to somehow play these pathetic characters. I'm, and I'm going to say pathetic, I mean truly pathetic. I mean, that's the one thing that I think American comedy has lost. We actually try to humanize our pathetic characters. Jerry Lewis didn't. That's His right. pathetic characters were truly pathetic. They were just the lowest of the low, which is why when that redemption happened, it really was earned. And despite his um, reputation for just being like a dumb, um, broad comedian, and he could do dumb and broad really well. Yes. But despite that, he there was quite a level of sophistication to some of his comic setups. Like, for example, in The Ladies' Man, um, the, the straightening the hat and the oh, incredibly yes. long hair scene, <laughs> the way that that plays with payoff and build and sus- suspension of and payoff look at this is, this is, is happening, really intelligent this is, this is happening in the 60s i mean you're talking about the myths of the sexual revolution and a lot of these storylines are very much a product of their time and yet jerry lewis is somehow able to firstly you know talk about the anxieties of that older generation talking about sex and at the same time also appeal to the new so in that sense it's such a beautiful snapshot of that time period but speaking of how great characters, really pathetic characters, um, he was an amazing comedian, but he was also an incredible, incredible dramatic actor. And my greatest introduction, my favorite Jerry Lewis moment was from The King of Comedy. One of I think it's had a resurgence of popularity in later years. It's one of my mm-hmm. favorite Martin Scorsese films, certainly one of his most popular of recent. This is where he plays an aging uh, Johnny Carson type figure. He's a late night talk show host who is stalked by a comedian, or two actually two a comedian and another stalker, in the guise of Robert De Niro. And it's quite a dark role, but at the same time, it's a very funny role. And there's scenes where he's at the mercy of these absolute madmen, but he plays it so well. He plays it darkly, and he plays it with 
amazing subtlety and the why and it's you know there's a lot of similarities between comedy and drama comedy and horror for that matter and this is something he would not have been able to do but for his amazing comedic talent and I don't think anyone who would have been more ideally cast in that role not just for the autobiographical aspects but for just how well he did it it's a great movie I, I heard that on the set of that Martin Scorsese was reading Jerry Lewis's very well received very highly regarded handbook with advice on directing films <laughs> and because he found it genuinely interesting and enlightening because Jerry Lewis was as I said and, and Verrett said a very talented and very um, in- intelligent film director one of the but things Scors- that Scorsese is sorry Jerry Lewis saw Scorsese the great man reading this book and assumed Scorsese was making fun of him but you know <laughs> yeah. Jerry Lewis yeah. no, you know didn't get the recognition he deserved to own that title of, as a great filmmaker which he really deserves to be known as Talking, talking about his uh, directing credentials, uh, it's interesting to actually look at physical comedy and how much of Jerry Lewis is actually, you know, that influence goes through. Because when Jackie Chan became a director, an action director, a lot of that physical setups is actually very much like Lewis because using those wide shots and yeah. just everything is in the frame. It's following which, on a the which doesn't tradition, as you said. Yes, yeah, you know, where, you know, you're setting up the entirety of the shot. Mm. And you can follow, and you're just using your yeah. eyes to follow the action. Musicals as well need that kind of um, directorial touch, and I think we've lost track of that in recent uh, years. There's too much shot reverse shot. I hate that. Exactly, just, exactly. I, I don't want you know to spoon yeah. feed me emotion because slapstick comedy and musicals genres like this are playing on the tr- the tradition of the stage. They're built around watching a performer's entire body, but a lot of yeah. directors can't move away from a more you know in your face style for that kind of work. Yes, so that was Jerry Lewis. Um, his films are available all over the place. Um, go seek them out. It's go, please, please do. And we're back in a time. We will be back next week talking about the Hitman's Bodyguard, starring Samuel Jackson and Ryan Reynolds. We have we, we saw this last night. We're actually quite excited. There's a lot lot to talk about here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Deadpool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's basically Deadpool. Deadpool, 1. Deadpool versus Sam Jackson. Essentially, yes. Uh, but it, it's it's great. It's it's pretty cool. We will discuss it at any rate next week. Um, there's a couple of festivals that are happening right now. You're very welcome to check out the Korean Film Festival in Australia as well well as the Allianz for a Saint Classic Film Festival at the Hayden Orpheum. Please do seek them out as well. Is the Korean Film Festival on now? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, Until interesting. The, and it played the, of the only Hong Sang-soo film which wasn't playing at MIFF. Really? The, yeah. the, the day it already tomorrow. played? Yes, it's already played this ah, uh, past Sunday. So you could have completed your Hong Sang-soo quartet if you were there. Yes, you have three more days to check that out. In the meantime, stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin. Um, this is Glenn Falcons and Chris Evans of Rotnay Roo. Enjoy movies and check out the Silly Dreams page. Good night. Good night. Good night.